Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org. Good evening. Good to have you all here tonight. I appreciate all those who have uh, agreed to come out. And You know, there's always something else you can find to do. The world is an enormous distraction, is it not? I mean, does it not just serve up one thing after another? There's any number of things. There's probably, if I were to look at your personal calendars, there's probably all sorts of things that you could say, well, I've got that thing tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to do this. Well, praise God, some of you came out tonight, and that's, uh, that's a blessing. I have been discouraged. Have you ever been discouraged? God's people get discouraged sometimes. I've been discouraged, but I am not discouraged tonight. I feel as though if I don't do a lick of preaching here, we've already had the presence of the Lord among us. Just in the fellowship that I've had and the conversations that I've had with each of you, spiritual fellowship that you don't find outside in the world. You find it in the kingdom of God. We've had kingdom fellowship tonight, whether I do a lick of preaching or not. I am not discouraged. I see young people here tonight. I see young people who are coming and joining our churches. We had three this last year at Harmony. Don't lose sight of that. It's incredibly important. And I would say this as, uh, as the Old Baptist Church, we've got a lot of work to do with respect to our own families. There's not a single one of us that can't name a handful of people that we know that are in our immediate sphere of influence, whether it's our natural families or just next door neighbors and things like that, that we think they would benefit tremendously by coming and joining the Lord's church. The fellowship we had here tonight, I'm telling you, there's people who are missing out on it. There's a lot of God's people out there just starving to death. If you're immature and you're left to feed yourself, what are you going to choose? I made this point the other day. I said, you know, if you turned a kid loose in a grocery store and they didn't have any sense about what they're supposed to eat like most kids don't, what are they going to do? They're going to run to the candy aisle and gorge themselves to death on Reese's peanut butter cups. Right? Nerds. They'll be eating nerds. Sick to death. Tummy aches. Just probably throwing up in the aisles. And then they go right back to eating more candy. They don't have any sense. That's how it would be naturally if you just turned a kid loose in a grocery store. Well, you turn an ignorant child of God loose in the religious world out there and they wander around, they find the candy aisle, and they just gorge themselves on it because they don't know any better. They're in ignorance. There's something they could get. There's spiritual food, spiritual meat, spiritual milk for the child of God that's available in the Lord's house. And we ought to double and redouble our efforts for those who are around us. I think we should be praying that the Lord would raise up laborers for the harvest. I had several conversations with elders from Arkansas where we're talking about this matter of, see, we got this thing going on now where if somebody's going to go preach somewhere else, you've got to change about 15 appointments among the primitive Baptist people to make this happen. (laughs) You know those little games that you used to get when you were a kid to have those sliding letters and you have to arrange them a certain way? That's the Primitive Baptist Church right now. We've got fewer elders than we have to fill up that whole thing, right? So every time Brother Gary wants to go preach, we've got to slide that D over there and slide this up. And it's just insane. Maybe instead of getting good at playing that slide game, we ought to get good at getting on our knees and praying that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers. He told us to pray that. Do we pray it? Do we believe it? We're deficient in that right now. Are we going to blame that on the Lord? Well, the Lord didn't provide. 
He told us to pray for it. I can only assume we hadn't prayed for it enough or prayed for it diligently enough. I'm not discouraged tonight, though. I've had the fellowship of the saints already, and I want to try to talk for a few moments if I can, if the Lord will be my helper. I want to talk about three things that have been on my heart, and I've been thinking about them for a while. It's the coming and the going that are described in the Bible. You hear people talk about coming to Jesus. Well, that sounds pretty good to me, by the way. Coming to Jesus, that sounds pretty good, but what do we mean by that? Coming and going and right division. Well, why do I say right division? Well, I want to start with the fundamentals, and this is not controversial. If it is, uh, we'll straighten you out after the service. Ground rules are right division. 2 Timothy 2, 10-15 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now this is Paul who taught the election and absolute certainty of the salvation of God's people. He's doing something here for a salvation. Does that teach you anything? Is Paul suddenly saying, well, I believe Jesus Christ got the job done. I wrote Romans chapter 8 about the absolute efficacy of the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of His people. However, if I don't do a little work over here on the side, that's not going to happen and they're not going to get their salvation. That cannot possibly be what Paul is teaching. There's another salvation in view here. And Paul was very interested in it. And that's what the Lord's New Testament church should be interested in. This very salvation that God's people can also obtain. This is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer... We shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. Well, that's a comfort. I see the Lord going to some people at one point, uh, you know, telling them. He he goes to His disciples at one point and says, How is it that you have no faith? That's pretty discouraging when you think about it. He's looking at the followers. Regenerate men. And He's saying, How is it that you have no faith? Well, if you believe that your eternal salvation is about the perpetual exercise of your faith, like those old 50s TV shows where you've got to spin those plates, and if you don't keep them all spinning, one of them falls off, you're going to hell. Well, the disciples in that moment, if you believe that doctrine, they're not in a good state. They're headed to hell. This, however, comes in and destroys that idea that salvation is about you keeping all the plates of faith spinning, Right? Because if we believe not, that's what we're talking about, right? You're persisting in unbelief. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful. He cannot deny Himself. He's done something. You see what I'm saying? He can't deny Himself. He can't look at what you're doing and how pathetic it is. And as a result of that, say, well, you're not going to go to heaven as a result of that. Because to do that, He would have to deny what He's done on your behalf. You see that? You're looking in the wrong place if you're looking to spin in those plates as to whether or not you're getting to heaven. You've got to look to what Christ did. Amen. You say, right, this brother's not persisting in faith. Well, that's right. So what? What did Christ do for him? We're going to deny that? The religious world wants to look to the wrong place. And in this, we learn something. I'm going to get a little further down before I dive into this. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Now, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
to understand the Bible, you must engage in a spiritual act of right division. This means understanding things in context in a way that is not contradictory and placing things into their appropriate context and categories as they're represented in Scripture. Now, if you do not do this exercise of rightly dividing the Scriptures, I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible is an irreconcilable pile of nonsense. That thing I told you earlier about, you know, he's talking about a salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory that the elect could also obtain. If that's eternal salvation, there's a huge conflict in that based on other things that Paul has said. So that alone tells you I've got to divide these things. I've got to start putting them into categories. My son enjoys and has for many years building those Lego puzzles. You know what I'm talking about? And some of those things are enormous. We've bought some huge things. They take a long time to, to build. And when he starts opening those things up. Now, for years, he would just kind of, it'd just be madcap. He'd just opening things, and there's pieces everywhere, and it's hard to keep up with everything. But I started this practice in trying to help him put those together where I would rightly divide the pieces. Because <laughs> I like to be kind of orderly about this, otherwise I get nervous. It starts making me feel chaotic. I'd say, let's, let's, let's separate them by color. All the gray pieces are going here. All the white pieces are going here. Here's the blue pieces. Here's the little clear pieces. There are kind of a few of those. And you break them down into categories. And then within that, you start saying, well, here's the ones that are of like sort, and you put them over here. And here's some that are all the same shape. And, and when you're done, you kind of have this array of the pieces that have been rightly divided, such that now, if you're going to try to understand the instructions that are laid out before you, you have a rational way to quickly find the part you're looking for, right? This is a gray piece, go to the gray section. It's round, here's the round pieces. It's kind of small, here's the small round pieces. I mean, we understand this, if we have a logical approach to just simple, natural things that we do, we understand the principle of right division, do we not? And it helps you if you're then going to try to follow the instructions and understand what they mean. Right division has a lot of components to it. The Bible says things like, let the dead bury their dead. Well, here's a principle of right division. Some people get off on this thing and they say, well, it's got this word in the Bible. That word always means the same thing. That's not going to work. It was Jesus' intent when He said, let the dead bury their dead, that dead people were going to go bury these dead people? That's in the same sentence, okay? That sentence, you're going to have to look at it. If you're going to make rational sense of it, you're going to have to rightly divide and say, in this instance, He means one sort of dead, and in the other sense, instance, He means another sort of dead. You know what that is? Here's a gray Lego piece, and here's a white Lego piece. And they're, they may be the same shape, right? They're both D-E-A-D. They're the same shape, but they have different applications and meanings. So that's an element of right division. The Bible talks about sheep. You ever heard that? You never read a Bible if you didn't know it talked about sheep. When you see that term in there, you're going to have to ask, is it talking about literal sheep? Or is it using sheep as a metaphor, a figurative form of sheep? And by the way, if it's using a metaphor, 
you're going to have to understand that metaphors and symbology doesn't always completely align with the thing that it symbolizes. Just in that instance alone of right division, there's two areas where you could make a mistake. You could misunderstand that this is talking figuratively about sheep rather than talking literally about sheep. So that's a potential area. The other thing is that you could be talking about the figurative sheep and you say because it's drawing this parallel that every other possible parallel between men and sheep must be true too. You are not covered in wool. Most of you. However, the Bible uses a sheep metaphor to describe you. So you have to understand, okay, there's a metaphor in play here. I need to understand what the intent of the metaphor is. What is the lesson I'm trying to learn? And not get wound up on the thing. Well, it said I'm a sheep, but I don't see that I have a hoof. Right? You have to understand the limitations of the figurative language. That's another aspect of right division. You ring fence around the sheep and the metaphor that's being used so that you understand you don't apply it beyond what its intent was. Another aspect of right division, by the way, I don't think any of this is controversial. I haven't seen any of you like glossing over going, oh, he's got some new doctrine here. But you know what? This kind of fundamental approach is so important. And so many of God's people in the world do not understand this the way we do, that it leads to many bad conclusions. The other aspect of right division that comes to mind is to whom is this written? I mean, if you don't get that, then there's all sorts of things in the Bible that are said. And you just have a tendency to say, well, this is said to everybody. You've got to pay attention to those things. And all of those are different dimensions of right division. Just like in the Lego pieces, you've got the different colors, the different shapes, the different you know, aspects that you can break them down into these categories and help you understand how to put something together. The same thing is true of the Word of God. This is a major principle in understanding the Bible. And it is absolutely essential. One of the things I said in that, which everybody agreed to, but I'm going to reiterate it because it's so important. There cannot be contradictions in the Word of God. Right? The Lord said, the Scripture cannot be broken. And what He meant by that is, if you says the Bible says this is A, and it also says this is B, you just have to believe both of them. That's wrong. You've got to figure out some way to rightly divide and reconcile those statements, right? Very important. If you apply this consistently throughout the Bible, there is a division that emerges out of this that's very important. It may, I believe, as someone who came to the Old Baptists from the outside and didn't understand this doctrine from a very early age and kind of approached it from the outside, it's this principle of division between what I would call UES and CTS. Those are my abbreviations. Unconditional eternal salvation on the one hand, and conditional time salvation on the other hand. What Christ has done on your behalf to deliver you to eternal glory, which is utterly unconditional, and what you must do as you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is nothing more than your reasonable service. And the salvation that will visit into your life, provided you do that. Amen. That division that I just described right there, 
That alone clears up a lot of problems in the Bible. Now, coming and going. People talking about coming to Jesus. Let's look at some examples of that and see if this right division that I've laid before you actually applies here. I want to look at Matthew chapter 11. We see an example of people being told to come to Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. If you've accepted the truths of the Word of God, you're one of those babes, right? Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Does that sound like knowing God is some function of your free will? No. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. How much control does man have in any of that? The answer is none. That's an astonishing statement in most Christian churches. If I were to stand there and read this, they would go, well, this is a mysterious utterance here. It's not mysterious to us. This is the Lord's business. He is sovereign over the work of salvation. And that's His business. Whomsoever the Son will reveal Him. Come unto me. Now we got a coming to Christ here in view, don't we? Let me ask you this up front. Do you think every coming to Christ in the Bible is the exact same thing? Or is that something that's going to have to be rightly divided? They may look the same. It's the same word. But one of them's white and the other one's gray. And they need to end up in different piles and they have different applications. And they end up in different places on the theological ship that you're trying to build with those pieces. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you eternal salvation. Now, have I taken liberties there? That's pretty much what most Christian people, many, many Christian people believe or teach from that verse. That this coming unto Christ is how you get eternal salvation. But no such thing is suggested here. First of all, let's look at the audience. Did we say that to whom this is spoken is important? That's a key element of right division, is it not? Who is this spoken to? It is not all of humanity. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That is talking about a spiritual burden. That is talking about the capacity that regenerate people have to know something about their own sinfulness and thinking, how can I be right with God? I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? I know I'm a sinner. And it's all in my past. There ain't no fixing it. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I don't have a time machine. If I could, I'd only go back and sin in a different way, perhaps. I'd probably do the same thing over again. Right. Isn't that awful? Yes, it is. If we had eternity and a time machine, I'm telling you, the Bible tells you you couldn't fix it. You could go back and run the same scenarios over and over again, and you'd make either the same mistake or some additional mistake. You can't fix it. Christ said, with men this is impossible. The laboring and the heavy laden are those who have spiritual sensibilities. It's not talking about, well, I got a job. I have to carry some heavy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> ain't talking about that. It's not talking about the guy that's working down at the feed store that's laboring and heavy laden. 
been carrying chicken feet all day long. It's talking about a spiritual burden here. And what does that tell you? To whom is this addressed? This is addressed to God's regenerate people because they're the only ones who are laboring and heavy laden in this way. That is going to radically change what this means. Those people are already in a state of eternal salvation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have those sensibilities. So the purpose of this coming to Christ cannot possibly be to impart eternal life to you. That would be like you coming to me and saying, Brother Dan, come unto me and I'll give you that tie. I've already got this tie. (laughs) What are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. God's not trying to give us the tie we're already wearing. You follow me? But He is talking to people who have the tie of eternal salvation already on them. And that tie is why they feel laboring and heavy laden. And what is He going to give? It's not eternal life. It's rest. And is there rest in the gospel truth that Jesus Christ got it done? I'm telling you, God's people out there in this world that are starving to death, they're gorging themselves on the candy aisle of bad religion. They can benefit tremendously from hearing the gospel and coming to the rest of knowing that Jesus Christ got the job done. That is a come to the Lord that's really in the context of come and be one of my disciples. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You're not finding it because of something you did. You're finding it because you're learning something about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done. What a rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, there's a coming to Christ that I would say falls in the CTS portion of this. That is talking about conditional time salvation. If you're a regenerate person and you hear an invitation to come to Christ to find rest in the gospel truth, you are being invited into the notion of you can be saved in the here and now by embracing this, joining the Lord's church, becoming a disciple, living as you ought, avoiding all the horrible consequences of sin that you would otherwise practice, avoiding all the ridiculous motions of religion that would have you jumping through hoops left and right, telling you you got to do this to get saved, and now you didn't do it right, now you got to go over here and do that. There's no rest in that. It's a hamster wheel of misery that religion will have you... It just never ends. You jump from one wheel to another. Well, I did this wheel for 10 years, and then I went over to another church, hopped in their wheel for a while. Well, it just goes on and on and on, and religion will get you to do that. But the Lord says there's rest to be found in understanding that the work of eternal salvation is done. So that kind of falls into the conditional time salvation side of things. Um, Let's look over at John chapter 6, though. Here's another coming to Christ that's referenced. John chapter 6, and I'm going to start in about verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. First of all, uh, does bread give you life, or is bread a substance that sustains an existing life? Right? Something about the metaphor there we need to keep in mind. 
none of us are going to go out here to the cemetery with a loaf of bread and expect that we're going to have any takers uh, if we're out there cooking BLTs. It's not going to happen. I love a BLT, but it's not going to bring anybody out of the grave, no matter how much bread you got. And if you call it the bread of life, that's not what's in view here. <clears throat> I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is talking about a work that Jesus came to do. Now look, if this coming that's in view here involves something that you must do as well, right? Then he must have come down to do the work he was going to do, and hopefully you're going to do your part of it too, right? But is that what's in view here? And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is something Christ is going to do. Not something that you are going to do. <clears throat> when I was a kid, on all candor, if, if I'd had my choice on a Sunday morning, I probably would not have gone to church. But my parents said, you know, you're coming with me. You get what I'm saying? It really was not a function of my will. It's a function of them putting me in the car and taking me there. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Skip down a little bit. People didn't like it. They're murmuring on this teaching. Because He's teaching the absolute sovereignty of God in the matter of eternal salvation. And I think that's going to become more clear here. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. I take that as you're over there murmuring, right? <laughs> Whether in per, you know, out loud or I can just see it on your face. <clears throat> can you imagine being in that assembly and you're, you're hearing this and you're not really, you're kind of disagreeing with the Lord? And maybe you're not saying anything, and then the Lord looks at you and says, Murmur not amongst yourselves. Boy, would that just cut right through the fog? You'd be like, Man, I better. That's rough. No man can come to me except the Father which which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. This is talking about the work of your eternal salvation. It's not talking about the work of discipleship. In that previous example where Jesus is saying, come unto me, the laboring and heavy laden, He's talking to people who are already eternally saved. And He's talking about how you can enter into discipleship and follow the Lord. How you can enter into the abundant life that He spoke of. Right? How you can have salvation in the here and now. The salvation from this untoward generation. Don't get out there and live like the world, running around drinking and taking drugs and running around with women and just all this horrible stuff that's out there. It's going to visit all manner of distress into your life. Come and live as you ought and avoid the horrible consequences of all that stuff. And the world is littered with examples. I mean, we don't have to look beyond our own natural families to find many, many examples of people who've just said, I just reject this. They may even be God's people, 
See what I'm saying? I mean, these may be people who have a spiritual mindset, and yet they've just said, I'm just not going to come to Christ in this sense. I believe that I can do this and get away with it. I'm a modern, sophisticated person, and those are old Hebrew fables. Yeah, maybe I believe in the Lord and all this stuff, but he's kind of, he's not really that involved in our lives. But you can ignore it all you want to, but the reality is the reality, and the truth of it is going to bring the consequences to bear in your life. This coming to Jesus is talking about what Jesus Christ would do. And when it talks about drawing the coming of you to Christ in that drawing, is all part of the same work. You draw a bucket up from the well, it's coming. You're drawing and it's coming. You follow me? But what does the bucket have to do with that? What I'm telling you is that in the matter of your eternal salvation, you ain't nothing but a bucket. (laughs) And the drawing inevitably results in the coming to Christ. Christ's work, stating this another way, Christ's work is utterly effectual in accomplishing the eternal salvation of his people he draws they come that's all there is to it it's not a matter of their will so this this thing in in matthew chapter 11 where it's talking about coming to christ in the manner of discipleship this is kind of uh this is part of what we are to be involved with right bringing people in the lord's new testament church encouraging them to become disciples of jesus christ um that's very important, but we don't have anything to do with what he's talking about in John chapter 6. We are nothing but the blessed beneficiaries of his benevolence in this work. Amen. John chapter 6 is spoken in reference to the elect family of God. It is dealing with our unconditional eternal salvation. It is true for all of them without exception. In a way that the Matthew eleven twenty eight, come unto me, is not true of all God's people in the same way. Even within your own church family, I think you're going to find variances in the degree to which people are willing to come to Christ and submit and get involved. You look through the Bible and the testimony of the saints of God, and you're going to find there's a variance there. There's some people, I mean, Lot was so terrible, he just about wasn't worth a hoot. If it wasn't for the New Testament, you wouldn't even think he was a child of God almost, right? He didn't do, it didn't seem like he did anything right. He he ended up in a miserable state. Daniel, he's so good that, I mean, I had my grandfather's Bible and it had scribbled in there. Daniel, nothing bad ever said of him. So what he scribbled in his Bible, he didn't write in his Bible much, but that one thing was there. So just in those two examples, you got somebody who's so bad you'd hardly even believe he was a child of God, and someone else who seemed to kind of do everything right and be diligent and, and faithful. And in that sense, if you will, they came to God, they came to Christ to differing degrees. They exercised the capacities they were given in regeneration to varying degrees. You follow that? And that's our responsibility. It's not the responsibility to get yourself to heaven. Christ took care of that. It's the responsibility as a diligent disciple, which is taught in the Bible as your reasonable service. It's not unreasonable. Jesus Christ, put your sins away. He did the impossible work that man could not do. No one could ever do the hardest work ever done. He did it on your behalf. You should be thankful. And out of an understanding of that gospel truth, you ought to follow the Lord. It's only reasonable. See what I'm saying? 
What I just hopefully did there is rightly divide this subject of coming to Christ, right? We looked at it, one of them is sort of a, uh, you know, you got this reference that's talking about the matter of discipleship, and the other one's talking in the context of eternal salvation and Christ's covenantal work. <clears throat> Very important that we understand those two things and that we rightly divide them because they create a lot of confusion. By the way, if you take this John chapter 6 thing and you take, you take an angle on it, it's like, well, uh, the coming to Christ here is just believing. And that means that all of God's people are going to believe on Jesus Christ. Well, what are the problems that arise out of that interpretation? Well, first of all, you've got the entire Old Testament. And where if you went to the saints of the Old Testament and said, you know what, I love Jesus Christ, they'd have been like, uh, Jesus who? You know, the one that died on the cross. Well, when did that happen? That's a problem. So if you're going to say, well, all of them are going to believe, you're going to have to start dumbing down the content that they believe. And as you start working through the biblical examples, you're going to start realizing there ain't nothing left if you're going to get all of them into heaven. Now you look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, it's talking about Rachel's children. They were murdered by Herod. Infants, under two years old, they showed up and killed them. What did they believe about Jesus Christ? You say, well, I, I see that. I, I reckon they didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, didn't believe much anything. Okay, we're in agreement there. The problem is that Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15 through 17, issues a prophecy wherein they comfort the mothers over the notion that their children have been murdered. They are comforted by the promise that they shall be reunited with their children. Now, how is that ever going to happen if those kids are burning in hell right now? So you've got a situation here now, based on the Bible's testimony. Those kids are in glory. They have to be. It's the only way they... I mean, how are you going to comfort a mother by saying, well, I know your kid was murdered by Herod, but take comfort. He's in hell. <laughs> that makes literally no sense, right? The promise is you're going to be reunited with your child. Those children are in glory, and we've already admitted they didn't believe anything. What if some do not believe? Did we not look at that verse? I mean, why is that verse even in there? Why is that verse even in the Bible if it's an ironclad, certain guarantee that everyone's going to believe orthodox, correct gospel truth? It's an unnecessary verse in the Bible. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, we talked about coming. Let's talk about going for a minute. Matthew 28. Put on your... PB helmet and do your chin strap, put your mouthpiece in. This could get rough. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What if some did not believe, right? What if some didn't believe? I suspect that if God installed a meter over our heads that would tell you how much you are exhibiting unbelief at any moment in your life so that we could all see one another, we would be astonished <laughs> at how much we persist in unbelief. I said at the beginning of this sermon, we don't have enough elders. The Lord said, 
pray to raise up workers unto the harvest. You're going to lay that on the Lord. Well, the Lord just had, we've been so diligent in prayer about this, but the Lord has just not answered our prayers. He told us to pray for it and we don't have it. I can only conclude that we haven't prayed for it enough, prayed for it diligently, prayed for it believing that it's going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass. And I want us to commit to praying for it. One of the greatest concerns I have as a pastor right now is that I can see that if we don't pray this diligently and have God deliver us, I feel as though this generation could be the one that buries the church. That's a frightening thought. If that happens, it's on us. The Lord said to pray for it, and I'm going to assume that if it doesn't come to pass, it's because we didn't take Him up on it. If we had that meter over our head showing how much unbelief we had, I think it would be astonishing. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Well, that's who we're supposed to be praying for about this, by the way. The one with all power? Where's the deficiency going to be found? Where's your argument? You got nothing. Why don't we pray about this? Let's pray for it. Wouldn't it be glorious if we came back here in five years and God had raised up men? If we weren't playing that slide the tile around game every time somebody wanted to travel and do an appointment somewhere else? Let's pray for that. I want to encourage you to encourage your churches to pray that God's going to raise up men. And I believe He'll do it. All power. By the way, all power is given unto Him. So that's where your quest is going. There's no deficiency of power to get it done. So we should have some confidence that He will. Verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, that was spoken to just a few people, and that work is done. Here's a trouble with getting too clever with right division. It is true that I was spoken to a handful of people here. That's true. It's technically true. However, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have implications for us. I mean, I think Paul told the Ephesian church to love your wives, right? That technically was said to the church at Ephesus. Are you going to now say, well, I don't really have to love my wife because that was said to the church at Ephesus. It has no implications for me whatsoever. The Lord wanted the Ephesian church to love their wives, but the rest of us, it's just a free-for-all. It was technically said to the church at Ephesus, but it has implications for God's people everywhere. You follow me? Likewise, go ye therefore was spoken to some specific people, and they did go, and we see some of the telling of that in the New Testament. But let me ask you this. Primitive Baptists who want to uh, turn their eyes away from this text and pretend it doesn't have any implications for them, it says to teach. Are we teaching anything? Well, if we aren't, we're not doing much preaching. This world is just ate up with ignorance about spiritual things. We've got a lot of teaching to do. There's a lot we could be doing here. But we're teaching, teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Well, are you baptizing? If you're not doing it on this basis, on the basis of this statement from the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the basis of your baptism? Well, it was said to these few men here and they fulfilled it already. Well, why are you baptizing? 
The fact that you're teaching and you're baptizing means you're, you've already admitted the implication here, right? You're not going to be able to squeeze out of it on some technicality. That's not right division. That's just dim-witted. Honestly, it's just dim-witted. It's being a little bit too clever in trying to handle the matter. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Are we doing that? If you're not, you're not doing much teaching or preaching. That's part of what we're supposed to do, is it not? The Lord said to go. We looked at coming to Christ, but He told us to go. I don't think it's controversial to state, but we hadn't done enough going. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, going overseas and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Let's keep it simple. Where could you go right here in your community, in your family, with your next door neighbors and people you know in your immediate sphere of influence? Let's start with that. Before we start chartering a plane to go over halfway around the world and do something, I'm telling you, the fields are wide under harvest right here, and we're dwelling in a land of spiritual ignorance, and lots of people are starving to death spiritually because they don't know the truth. There's lots of God's people out there. I don't know any primitive Baptist people wouldn't say, I know lots of people are good. You talk to him, well, I know this brother, he goes to this other church. Now, I know he's a child of God. He's got the love of God in his heart. He's just been a good friend all these years, and I, I just... I'm sure that's true, and I sense it. But you know what? We shouldn't give up on the notion that people like that, in many respects, are starving to death spiritually. They're laying there in the candy aisle of Christianity, and they're gorging themselves on stuff that's not going to meet their spiritual needs. They need to experience the simplicity of Christ in the Lord's church. It's actually not that difficult. We don't need a laser light show. We don't need a fog machine. We're not doing laser Floyd here. It's just nothing but singing, preaching, and praying. Opening the Bible, looking at it, reading it, applying it to our lives. It's not, in that sense, it's not that difficult, right? But I'm telling you, what we're doing here is a strange thing compared to what the religious world does on a regular basis. We need to go. We've got some teaching to do. We've got some baptizing to do, and I'm looking forward to that in the coming Amen. weeks and months. We've been encouraged in recent months with baptisms. I know we, you had one today at Point Remove. And we've got some teaching to do. Well, as we close here, let me look at one more thing. Let's go back to the notion of coming, spoken of by Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll close on this idea. So we know that we've come to Christ in the John 6 sense. We've been drawn. We didn't have any will in that. He's getting the work of eternal salvation done. Those of you who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ trying to follow Him, there's a, you followed the, uh, the admonition that's in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto Me. You've tried to come unto the Lord and be taught of Him. Take His yoke upon you. Serve as a disciple. Learn. Those are all good things. But Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 talks about what we have in the Lord's church. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So these are the roles that have historically existed in the church. Some of those no longer extant, but were at the time that this was written, they were things like apostles. 
Uh, we could debate where the prophets exist. I would say there's an element of prophesying that doesn't mean speaking some new thing, foretelling the future or whatever, but repeating the things that have been previously said. But at any rate, these are the things that are in the church. The religious world's going to say, yeah, those are the tools we're going to use to go out there and get people into heaven. But what does the Word of God say? Let's just, let's just keep it simple. What's the reason? For the perfecting of the saints. Perfecting of the saints. You see that? This is talking about God's people here. The work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Those things are all within the family of faith. That's all gifts given to the kingdom of God for God's people. This is not a recruitment set of gifts here. See what I'm saying? This is to minister to those who already have the love of God in their hearts. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a coming there. We can all come in the unity of the faith. You see, the truth of the Word of God is a singular truth. It's like a point on a graph. It's like the North Pole, right? And if you are rightly dividing the Word of truth that you have, it's like having a reliable compass that's going to point you in the right direction. And it doesn't matter where you are on the planet if everyone has a correct and working compass that is properly calibrated and there's a single point that is due north and we all start to move towards it, that is how we're going to achieve unity. And we'll have unity to the degree that we actually get to that point. See what I'm saying? But God's not going to levitate you there. That is not the John 6 sense of coming to Christ. He's not levitating you to that north pole. But He's given us His Word... And He's given us these gifts, pastors and teachers and evangelists, and He's done it for the purpose of perfecting the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We have this singular truth that we should all be pursuing. And as we pursue it and become closer to it, we're all moving towards that one point. And the degree to which we've embraced the truth, we're going to find we are more and more unified, getting closer and closer together. See that? That's a coming we all need to do. Coming in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. That's where much of the world is. There's an immaturity. It's that candy aisle again, right? Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's the notion of being ignorant of what you need to know. And then every time some new religious notion comes up, going off in that direction. You've never been grounded in that singular truth. You have no compass, really, is what it kind of comes down to. You don't know where the truth is. You're bouncing around. Somebody tells you one thing and you go here and they tell you something else. And you're just roaming around. Blown around by every wind of doctrine like a ship on the ocean that's got no compass and you're just going wherever the prevailing winds are blowing you. That's the way a lot of our friends and neighbors are. It's a form of bondage. There's an anxiety in not knowing where you're going and when you're ever going to get there, right? But speaking the truth in love, 
may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That's that point we're trying to get to. Jesus Christ is the North Star. His Word points us in His direction, and to the degree that we approach it and diligently apply ourselves in that, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, understanding these things in a rational and non-contradictory fashion that's consistent with its intent, we'll find ourselves moving towards the North Star that is Jesus Christ, and we'll experience that coming together, that unity of the faith. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org.